0: So the morning we're talking about Barabbas, and as I was working on this message and kind of looking at it, I was it was just so cool how God was showing me some new things in the story of Barabbas. It's not that we know much about Barabbas, but there's a lot in what we do know. And so I will go ahead and apologize ahead of time because we're going to move through a lot of scripture, and we're going to repeat a few verses because there's going to be some different points at different times that I want to bring out. So we're going to move kind of quickly through some of this, but hopefully you get an understanding of, of some of these things that God has put on my heart to share to you today. And so we have this person named Barabbas, who is somebody that is being offered as another person instead of the place of Jesus, or Jesus taking his place, is by the way probably to explain it. And so we're going to dive into who was Barabbas, and what was he about, and how we can identify with Barabbas And we're also going to do a thing where it's going to be like a verses thing between Barabbas and Jesus. So the first thing I want to share with you today, the first verse, is in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 16. And if you'd like to use the Bible app, it's under the event page, and all these scriptures will be laid out there. Or if you'd like to follow along, uh, feel free to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, verse 16, as we get started. And most of the story can be found there. And course, the other gospels, as we'll talk about. The first verse I want to share, though, is this 16 in chapter 27. It says, at this, at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And so I want to share with you, and sometimes we don't really kind of really pick up on this, but Barabbas's first name actually was Jesus. So Jesus Barabbas was this one person And Jesus was actually a popular name during the time of Jesus. Actually, researchers have found over 70 tombs or places of burial where the name Jesus was actually around and buried during the time of Jesus. So Jesus was a common name used, and this was a a name that Barabbas actually had with him. So this was probably kind of his first name, and maybe Barabbas was kind of his middle name or last name, but they were together. And Matthew, being the tax collector, he would have guessed the tax collector would know exactly who you are. (laughs) Okay, that wasn't that funny, I guess. (laughs) The tax collector knew who he was and uh, named him Jesus Barabbas. And so the thing I want to look at is the name Jesus. What does the name Jesus actually mean? It's Yeshua. It's the name for God in the Hebrew. And it means Yeshua saves or God saves. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind is that the name of Jesus was actually a really cool name to give your son. It was a name that was used because they wanted God to save them. And especially during the occupation with Rome, it was probably a name that everybody kind of wanted to use. And so it was a popular name because Yeshua, they wanted God to save them. They wanted their God to rescue them out of the situation they were in. Now, Barabbas, we kind of say it wrong, and I'm going to continue to say it wrong because that's just how I was raised but actually, Barabbas is actually different. It should be said Bar and then Abba, Abbas. So it means the son of the father. So that's what Barabbas means, is the son of the father. Uh, Bar- Barabbas means that, son of the father. So here's the first thing I want to do is this verses system, if you, if you will. The son of the father versus the son of man. Because Jesus was oftentimes referred to the Son of Man. He referred to himself as being the Son of Man. And so as I think about the Son of the Father, I think about all the sins that have been committed that Barabbas represents through the ages, through his father Abraham to Adam himself, who had sinned against God through all these ages, all these years. That Barabbas represents all the sin of mankind from, from very beginning to the very end. He represents the sins of the father and sins of himself. That he's a sinner. That he is attached to the old Adam, if you will. Where Jesus, as we're going to talk about, is attached and he himself is the new Adam. And so the next scripture I want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44. It says this. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam came, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. After that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, talking about Adam. The second man is of heaven, talking about Jesus. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, so those who are of the earth, and as in the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Just let me stop for just a second. We're going to continue on here. But I want to just explain what he's, what he's sharing here, what Paul is sharing with us, is those that are of the old Adam, the one that was, was created first, was the first Adam to exist, had sinned against God. God and the flesh had become corrupted, was going to die. God declared that to Adam and Eve, that you will die. Not right away, but you're leading your life to death. And so we find death in the flesh. But in the Spirit, we find life. We find heaven through Christ because of his spiritual side. And so we continue on, and it says this, and just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so we bear the image of the heavenly man. In other words, I'm not just flesh, I'm also spirit, and I need to make sure that I understand that, that I need to die out to this old fleshly side and live in the spiritual side, that I can attain heaven, because that's where Christ is. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, our flesh is condemned. We don't take our flesh with us. That will be in the ground. But when we die, our spirit goes. And we are taken up to God. And if we have chosen Christ as our personal Savior, we are able to enter into heaven because our spirit has been saved by Christ. And so where does this term son of man really come from? And there's many different places I could take us to, but Daniel chapter seven is one of those. And as I mentioned a few months ago when I preached the message about Daniel, that it, it's so fascinating to hear Daniel is taken from his homeland. He's, he's lost everything and, and it looks like the nation of Israel will never be again and, and how dis- disappointing and discouraging it must be to, be to know that. And yet God is giving him dreams and, and giving him visions to encourage his heart, to help him know. That that there's a plan, That is a purpose, that God has something ahead. And so God gives Daniel this vision and it's in verse 13 of chapter seven of Daniel. It says, in my vision at night, I looked and there, there before me was one like the son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approaching, approached the ancient of days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All the nations and the peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so in that, we see what the Son of Man is going to be like. But the Son of Man is a term that Jesus uses, and if you look up the definition, it's about humanity, See, Jesus not only had to prove that he was fully God in the flesh, but he also had to prove he was fully human to take our place. So he was fully human and fully God. So he refers to him in that that tone or that way or that phrase to help us to make sure we understand he is also fully human and fully God. And so we look at the next one that I want to share with you. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 27 through 29, this is what it says. And whoever wants to be first, this is Jesus speaking, must be your slave. In verse 28, just as the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus had to come on and take humanity on for us he had to come and take Barabbas' place. Because Barabbas, all he had to offer was the sins of himself, the sins of the fathers that he had before him. All he had was his flesh, as I was thinking about this message, there was another concept or another idea I could add it into this, that a lot of times we focus on our abilities, we focus on our flesh, we focus on what we can do ourselves and our will and what we want to do, and yet we live out the fact of what God will is wanting, and we leave out the spiritual side of things. We leave out the spiritual, you know, like, like some, of, some of you guys look really great, you lo- really look buff, and you're You're awesome. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you look at me and and look at you and you probably look a lot better than me, maybe. (laughs) But sometimes we can get so focused on the fleshly side that we miss out on the most important thing about all of life. Your whole life is about the spiritual side of you that needs to be connected to God, that needs to be connected to Christ. And unfortunately, we're all like in Barabbas. We're all stuck here in the fleshly side. You know, because what did Barabbas want to do? He wanted to do his will. He wanted to do his things, his priority, the things that he wanted to do. And we're going to dive more into that here in just a second. So the next thing I want to talk about is this versus thing that I want to talk about, insurrectionist versus Messiah. So Barabbas is an insurrectionist, where Jesus is the Messiah. Two different ways to go about things. And we're going to look into that. Mark chapter 15, verse 6 through 7. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas, who was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. So here we find out that he is an insurrectionist. He is causing Problems for the Roman authority. He is trying to kill people to overthrow the Roman authority. He thinks he's doing what's right. He's standing for a cause. He's trying to do something that he believes in. But yet it's not what God wants. It's what he wants. It's what other people want. And so many times we can pave a road with good intentions. We can try to do the right thing, but we go about it in the wrong way because it's about us and not about God not what God wants see how did he lose sight of the fact that thou shalt not murder but yet now we see it's clearly defined that he has caused murder to happen so he is an insurrectionist but yet look at ourselves and if I look at myself I know I rebel against God I try to fight with God. I try to fight with God and what he wants for my life. And I try to say, no, God, I don't want to do that. But God says, Eric, this is what I want for you. But I rebel. No, God, I don't want to do that. Well, I become an insurrectionist, just like Barabbas. Romans 8, verse 7 through 8. This is so, so true for all of us. In the book of Romans... Is a wonderful book that really captures. A lot of us know it from the Romans Road, but I want to kind of expand our thinking on Romans because Romans is, is helps us to understand how the law is there and how it judges us because it's there, it's in front of us, and then we have to respond to that law. And then how Jesus saves us from the law because with the law we're just condemned, but with Jesus we're saved, we're spared. And so we'll dive into that more. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. As I mentioned about Ravis, he's there and he's willing to fight and he's willing to do whatever it takes. And he's using using his might and using his strength. And he's wanting to defy the Roman authority and do all he can to cause disruption. See, that's the same way with all of us, that our flesh gives way to try to rebel against God. When God says, don't hurt others, we go about and hurt others. When God tells us to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that is not something we're doing. When he says to love him, we don't do it like we should. And it says, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In other words, there's this battle going on between our, our spiritual side and our flesh. There's a constant battle that goes inside of us. And what we need to do is make sure that we're letting the Spirit win in our life. That we need to make sure that we allow God to work. And it says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. In other words, if you're just living over here and you're not even going to that spiritual side... You can't please God. You just can't please God. If if you're going to stay here, if you're going to just stay in the flesh and just live in the flesh and just let your flesh have whatever it wants, whatever pleasure comes to you, whatever you would like, that's not going to ever get you to where you need to be. This right here, the fleshly side, is going to die. It's going to be killed. One day, my body will be buried, but my spirit. live on and it's up to me it's up to each one of us to choose what we do with our fleshly side as i think about this and i go back to peter how crushing it was because peter was kind of that way he he was approaching the spirit he was he was trying to live with god in the spirit and trying to understand who jesus was and and even saying you are the christ you are the messiah And, you know, he had those moments, but then there was these times where he would approach back to the fleshly side and kind of live in the flesh. He would say, I'm not going to let you die, and I'm going to rebuke you if you talk about dying for us. I'm not going to let that happen. How crushing it must have been. Imagine this, Garden of Gethsemane, these temple guards come to him, and this one, you know, comes up and tries to grab Jesus. And Peter has a sword, and he takes the sword and cuts this, this ear off this servant, temple servant, temple guard and what does Jesus do? He takes the ear of his enemy, somebody that's going to take him away from his disciples, and he takes his ear and he takes it and heals this man's ear. The enemy. And he rebukes Peter from saving him. Part of the reason why I think Peter denies him later is because his whole world has been shocked and destroyed. He didn't want to ever see Jesus die. He wanted to say, no, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let this occur. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you die. To where he's like, what can I do? Jesus, it's almost like he wants to die. And he did. He wanted to die. And sometimes our own will, our own desires get caught up in this part where we're fleshly, and we're not really seeking God like we should. We're not letting God to speak to us and work through us. Matthew 27, verse 17, it says this. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So interesting thing here is that Pilate calls Jesus the Messiah, an outsider, recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, or he is being called the Messiah. I think that's very interesting that an outsider, someone that is not among the Jewish people, recognizes that there's something inside of Jesus, that there is this call that Jesus has, or that people are saying this about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. So we have an insurrectionist, and then we have the Messiah. And what does it say? About the Pharisees and the religious leaders, out of their own fleshly self-interest, they were bringing this to him. They brought Jesus to him out of self-interest flesh. So Messiah, what does Messiah mean? Anointed one by God, a leader, a savior of a particular group or cause. So in this Jesus, we see this savior, this leader. And it's two different styles, right? Jesus is coming as, as a lamb of God. He's coming to, to show the way. He's not coming to rebel against Roman authority. Why? Because he knows there's something greater ahead. And he knows that there's something more important than just the flesh. He knows that there is a spiritual battle that he must win. John chapter 1, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, first missionary here, and first evangelist. Find his brother Simon, tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And it's so interesting that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he hears he may have seen Jesus being baptized, and he saw this moment where maybe John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so he's so excited, he goes and tells his brother, right in the first chapter here, Jesus has not even begun his ministry yet. And Andrew recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the leader, the Savior, that God has promised. So we have these two issues at heart. Am I an insurrectionist, or am I going to follow the Messiah? Next verses thing that we're going to talk about is guilty versus innocent. Guilty versus innocent. Going back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 16. I know I read this, but I just want to bring something else out of it. It says, At this time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. I find it interesting as I brought to you the fact that Jesus and Barabbas Had the same name that he was a well known prisoner. This was not somebody that was an accident that he was in prison. It wasn't somebody that, oh, I wonder if he did it or didn't do it. It was well known. It was talked about. They didn't have the evening news or Facebook, of course, or anything like that to communicate, but the word on the street was they have this prisoner who is an insurrectionist who killed people, murdered somebody, and who is guilty of this crime. There wasn't any doubt. He was guilty. He was deserving of crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, verse 7, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So again, just reinforcing another gospel here that the same evidence is there throughout that Barabbas was well-known. He was with groups that were trying to overthrow Rome, which I find is interesting because going back to the fleshly thing, that this government was in charge, Rome was in charge for another 250 years after these events. So that didn't really happen like they wanted it to. But here's the thing. Barabbas was well-known and he was guilty. John chapter 18, verse 40, part B now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Again, just to establish the fact that this was well known, and it was well known in the gospels that that Barabbas was a bad dude. He'd done some bad things. But now I want to speak to us. Because we're guilty. I'm guilty. See, there's not much difference between me and you and Barabbas. He was guilty, we're guilty. We're guilty of all the sins we committed. As I shared in the first service, and I kind of shared this during our communion time, but you know, when I was a teenager, I was so angry at God, I blamed him for everything that was wrong in my life. I blamed him for me having cerebral palsy. I blamed him for you know, being picked on at school. I blamed him for you know, my teeth being funny, or you know, I blamed him for my, my dad being abusive. All my anger and all my hatred was towards God as a teenager because I blamed him for everything in my life. I stand guilty. I stand guilty before God. If if the Ten Commandments, and this is going back to the book of Romans, was looking at me and I stood next to those Ten Commandments, I would fall short every single time because I can't do anything with my sin. I can't hide my sin. I can't destroy my sin. I can't get rid of my sin. It's still there. I'm guilty. And unfortunately, I hate to break this to you, but you're guilty as well. We're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of doing the wrong thing. The the point of sin is that I in the middle of it. It causes us to realize that it's selfishness, the selfish desires, that I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that leads us to do really bad things. Luke chapter 23, verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest talking about Jesus here and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man talking about Jesus. So so Pilate interviews Jesus one time and he talks to him and he goes back to the Pharisees and says, I don't find anything wrong with this man. There's no basis for this. Do you realize how important it was, how important it is that somebody found Jesus innocent that Jesus had to be declared innocent to take our place. In other words, there couldn't be any doubt with this. That he had to be innocent. If he was going to be the spotless lamb that we talk about and we sing about, he had to be proven innocent. That he had done nothing wrong. And Pilate, the first time he talks to him, realizes that. That this man had done nothing to deserve death. Probably hadn't done anything at all his whole entire life. He's innocent. He's innocent. Luke chapter 23, verse 15, it says this, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have no, found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And you can see he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. So not only was, now think about this, there was a third party here, Pilate, who evaluated Jesus, said, Jesus is innocent. He hasn't done nothing wrong to deserve this punishment. He finds out he's a Galilean. He sends him to Herod, which is another, let's say, fourth party, because we, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees interrogated him. Well, let, let's say third. Maybe I'm Maybe I'm wrong. It's first, second, and third, right? As I, as I think about it in my head, now I'm, now I'm questioning myself. But anyhow, the whole idea is this, that he was interrogated. That night he was arrested. He was interrogated by Pilate once. And then Herod, he sends him to Herod when he finds out he he's Galilean. Herod sends him back. And then Pilate, okay, here's the fourth time. Pilate investigates him again. And on the fourth time, he's innocent as well. In other words, it's so important for us to take in, at least for me, that I understand this, that Jesus was totally innocent. And he was proven innocent, not just by his peers, not just by the Sanhedrin or the high priest, which was done very illegally. Think about this, that even when he was arrested that night, there's a pause in the scriptures where it talks about they were looking for somebody to speak against Jesus and they could find no one. So I don't know how they did it, but they went and got in the gutters or went on the streets and tried to grab two people to come up with something against him. And all they could say against him was that he said that he was going to tear down this temple in three days, which he was talking about himself. Not talking about the, the temple, the building. But that's all they had against him until they asked Jesus a particular question that had to do with being truth and honest about who he was. And that's all they used against him. But all these times, Jesus is proven innocent, innocent, innocent. And it continues. Matthew 27, verse 22 through 24. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. they answered him, crucify him. Why? What, what crime has he committed? Can you imagine this? That he's standing in front of all this group of people and Pilate, This outsider is defending Jesus because of his innocence and saying, what crime has he done? What has he done? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was not going to get anywhere, nowhere else, but they had insisted an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in the front of the crowd. And I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility so I think about that. We, a lot of times we, we blame Pilate for this. We we get upset because Pilate could have saved Jesus, right? That he's washing his hands. He's removing himself. But I think this is another thought that we should have. Pilate believes that he's so innocent, that Jesus is so innocent in this situation, that he's saying, I'm not having anything to do with this person because you're doing something that's totally wrong. An outsider is saying that. Pilate. And I also think it's it's interesting because he's, oftentimes Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat. Again, that he was being allowed by God to be the judge in this situation. And he rules over and over again that Jesus is innocent in this situation. So much so that he's saying, I can't have anything to do with this. You're totally off base. He's your responsibility now. So we come to this idea in Romans chapter 8 verse 2 through 4 what a powerful scripture in verse 3 actually we're going to look at verse 3 for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh not talking about how the law judges us and it condemns us in the flesh god did by sending his own son who is his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So in this we find out that the reason why Jesus had to be innocent, had to be pure, had to be blameless, is so he could take our place. So he could take our place. See, I'm over here. Like all of us, I'm guilty. You know what? Jesus is being punished for the very thing that Barabbas deserved. But yet, Jesus was willing to take that on for all of us. He was proven innocent so that he could move over here and take our spot. He became that flesh for us that was perfect. So, the last thing today that I want to share with you is accepted versus rejected. Accepted versus rejected. John chapter 18, verse 40. They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Imagine that. They don't want Jesus. See, Barabbas is the one that's accepted in this situation. Barabbas is the one that's saying, hey, I want, we want Barabbas. We want the guilty. We want the insurrectionist. We want the rebel. We want the murderer. As I was also thinking about another little versus thing that we have one person who takes life. And then over here we have another person who gives life. But we want this, right? Right? We want to accept the rebel. We want to accept the insurrectionist. But they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 18 through 20. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Verse 20. Waiting to release Jesus, wanting to release Jesus, sorry. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So again, Pilate is repeatedly wanting to to let Jesus free, but he can't because everybody else wants him dead. Luke 23, verse 22, for the third time, for the third time. He spoke to them. Why? What crime has he done? What crime has he committed? I found no in him no grounds for death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then released. But with a loud shouts, they insisted and demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demands. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. And the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. but here's here's the thing here's the amazing thing this is what God wanted God wanted Barabbas to be accepted so that they would reject his son Jesus wanted them to accept Barabbas so they would reject Jesus so that all the punishment and all the sin and all the things that mankind had done would be upon Jesus and that he would take all the punishment that we deserved and he would take it on himself and take it all for us for you and me and so we come to Acts chapter 4 verse 10 through 12 and this is Peter and Peter had done a miracle and this, there's some religious leaders that of course are upset because this man had been healed and 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 they're having a discussion and they're kind of asking Peter questions and, and here's the response that Peter has. Again, this is a little bit after their conver I mean not conversion, but the, the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit showing up and Peter's emboldened and the disciples are too. And so they're sharing and they're evangelizing. And so here's a situation, a man that has been born a crippled and he's healed. And this is what Paul or Peter responds to those who are questioning him, verse ten. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified by, but whom God has raised from the dead. That this man who stands before you healed, that this man that this stands before you has been healed, and Jesus is this. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. So we find the salvation in Jesus, and we see that this cornerstone has been rejected by the people that. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was not wanted. Jesus was not desired. And so that gave God the opportunity to put his wrath upon Jesus and punish Jesus for all of mankind's sin. So he accepted Barabbas and the guilt that Barabbas had and our guilt and our shame, and he took it on and put it on Jesus so that we could live and have a wonderful path to God as innocent because of Jesus' blood. So we're saved, we're spared. All of mankind. No one else can find another name. In other words, you can't find anybody else to save you except Jesus Christ because he took your place. As we close today, as we close this time, let's look at Barabbas a little differently because he was the person that stood like we should have stood, witnessing and and, and just... Understanding our guilt, that we're guilty, and understanding that this Jesus is innocent. He came to be a Messiah. He was the Son of Man. He was fully human, fully God. That I deserve to be punished. I was the one that was the rebel, the insurrectionist. But Jesus came to take my place. He came to take your place. He came to die for you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here this morning or watching online that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, Lord, I pray that they would take this moment to accept you now. To say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need you to come in and wash me and clean me. Lord, forgive me of my past mistakes and my current sin that I've done against you. And wash me whiter than snow. Lord, help me to live for you. Thank you for loving me and caring for me. Thank you for being innocent. Thank you for being the great leader that you were, being the Messiah, that you came down here upon earth to show me how to live. And Lord, you are the Son of Man. You are that perfect Adam that came down from heaven and lived among us to show us the way, but ultimately to lay down your life for each one of us. Help us not to live just in the flesh, but help us to live in the spirit. Help us to want to do more than just what this world has to offer, but to seek your presence and your Holy Spirit and allow you to work in our hearts and our lives. And I pray for all of us that are even Christians, that have been Christians for a while, that you'd help us to remember this, help us to be mindful of what you've done for us, that you love us and you care for us, that you came to save us. Thank you for all that you do. Be with us during this time of communion and help us to reflect on what you've done for each one of us. In your wonderful name, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we... uh, take communion I go back to those crowds yelling out crucify him, crucify him, crucify him crucify him I think about them shouting out the name Barabbas they call out Barabbas, give us Barabbas, we want Barabbas, give us Barabbas no, not Jesus, we want Barabbas makes me think about what name am I calling out? Whose name am I calling for? Because now, now that I've been exposed to what Jesus has done for me, now that I know the truth of his love for me, shouldn't we call out the name of Jesus? Shouldn't we call his name? Think about it to have a whole crowd of people, not wanting you, rejecting you. I don't wanna be one of those. I wanna be found faithful and calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. So as he met with his disciples, this flesh that had come, that was perfect for each one of us, fully God, Fully man, was willing to break his body, was willing to be bruised, beaten, chastised, whipped, crowned with a crown of thorns, pierced for all of us. So when he met with his disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the blood that you shed. And I thank you for your broken body that you took on our punishment, but you didn't just stop there. You allowed your blood to be shed so that we could be free from all of our sin, that we could be innocent again because you took our place. Thank you, Lord, that we may not understand what you're doing or how you're working. We may not fully understand your will for our lives, but we know without a doubt we are loved and cared for, that we are valued. And when we look to the cross, we see the value of our own life because you laid it down for us. So as we take the cup, this is the blood and remembrance of him. This is the representation of his blood that was shed upon that cross for me and you, that was given so that when Christ looks at me and you, he doesn't see the guilt anymore. He doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see the things I've done wrong in this life. He sees his perfect son in my place. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it, we don't deserve it, but it's because of his great love and grace to us that he gave it freely for each one of us that choose to believe in him and call him by name and say, Jesus, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. And Jesus said, take, drink. This is my new covenant. Do this and remember it to me. Lord, again, I just thank you for allowing us all to be here today. And Lord, whatever you want done with this message time, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us all and be a reminder to us in a, maybe a different way or a new way of what you came to do. You came to set us free. You came to free Barabbas. You came to accept his punishment, but not only his punishment, but each one of us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for accepting mine. Thank you for taking all the guilt, all the shame away from me. And I can stand before you innocent because I choose to believe and trust in your name. You are my Savior, my Messiah. You are the Son of Man. And you will be sitting on your throne, reigning forever and ever and ever. Amen.